platform called Mixcloud. It's a platform for human curators, radio presenters, DJs. Uh, we're based out of London. And uh, how did I get there? I used to have a college radio show, and I was looking for somewhere to put up the radio show online. And uh, that's basically what we do. I think I did that in less than a minute. All right. Hey, I'm Sean. I'm a Leo. My favorite color is purple. And most relevantly, I guess, I just left Apple Music a couple months ago where I was working on... I mean, I kind of had this weird position. I did a little of everything, but I built a lot of the product, a lot of the content, and uh, ended up working on a lot of the social features. I mean, I'll talk more about what I did there, I guess, when it's relevant on the panel. But, yeah, I guess that's it. Damn, speed readers on this panel. You like it? <laughs> Hi, I'm Michael Jeffrey here. Early part of my career, and I think this is a good connection, I, I did ringtones, built the first ringtones platform for mobile, and um, then many years later joined uh, Grace Note, spent a lot of time building out the music business, so a lot of these folks here I know very, very well. Just, just, to, just to check how old he and I are, is there anybody in this room who doesn't know what a ringtone was? Okay. Oh, good. Oh. All right. I'm not dead yet. All right. <laughs> they used to be a massive business. Yes. Yes. And well, the rest of the world, it was actually it was huge business. And then I joined uh, recently joined a year ago or so uh, Rovi, and now for those that don't know, there's one person on our panel. This was news aware. to me. I cannot believe I did not know this. In September we closed uh, merger with TiVo, so now we're called TiVo. So if you hear. Rovi Music, or you hear TiVo, TiVo Music Video, um, we're all one company now. I'm Wade Metzler, and am I on? I am also a Leo, and I also worked in ringtones. So, <laughs> so I started, I started about 20-some years ago in the music business, uh, doing A&R for major music publishers at EMI, and then I used to have an independent record label up here in San Francisco. Uh, then I moved on to ASCAP um, and worked there for about six years in the rock and pop department. And then I moved into business development for Verisign in Silicon Valley uh, with Jamster and Jamba, starting in ringtones and full song downloads, mobile gaming, et cetera. Then I um, was able to start a, a uh, mobile app called TuneWiki, which provided all the time to sync lyrics to the music that's housed on your phone and for Spotify. Uh, past three years have been with Sound Exchange um, and heading up their efforts on the West Coast for their artists and industry relations. There's seats over here for y'all sit standing in the back. Yeah, don't 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 be embarrassed to squeeze in between people. Um, okay, so just to start off, since we've got folks here who represent both on-demand music services uh, and uh, non-interactive DMCA compliant services. Uh, both building them and collecting money for them or from them and distributing them to artists. Uh, it'd be useful to talk about uh, where a dollar goes. Um, how does the money get split across various parties and how does that differ between uh, interactive and non-interactive services? I can start on that. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk on the, well, interactive, the difference between interactive service and um, interactive service and a non-interactive service. Non-interactive would be something like Pandora or SiriusXM, which is a radio-like digital service. So, whereas an active service would be something, or interactive service would be something like Spotify, Tidal, uh, Apple Music. So, where on pa Pandora you can pick Band of Horses Radio, 
you can go to Spotify and pick Band of Horses, the song, the funeral, or listen to the full album. And Sound Exchange, we represent non-interactive radio. So this Pandora side, Sirius XM side, and 2,500 different radio-like digital stations. Um, in that side, the, it pays completely differently the way in, than an interactive service pays. So we're a non-for-profit organization that take in the money from um, Pandora, Sirius XM. I'm gonna use those two because they by far drive the business on our side. Um, we then monitor exactly what they're playing, and then we pay out to those artists and record labels to who is being played on those services. So we represent the artists and the copyright owner for their performance royalties, where ASCAP, BMI, CSAC would represent the songwriter and the publisher for their performance royalties. On our side, on SoundExchange, the copyright owner gets paid directly 50% of what's being um, paid out. The, the artists themselves get paid directly, not through the label, get paid directly 45%, and 5% goes to the musicians union for backup players, session players, and vocalists. Whereas in interactive service, you could probably speak to that, Sean, maybe. John? I, honestly, I, I'm not the payments guy, but uh, <laughs> I mean... I could, I could, a, yeah, I could I mean, still do it. You're, you're gonna be, I, I could do it, but you could do it better. Yeah. Like. Well, in that case, you know, on interactive payments, they go directly to, they, they are licensed from the record label themselves. The, the uh, payments then go into the record label, and depending on what the um, agreement is with the artists and the record label and what recoupables are there, et cetera, et cetera, is how they get paid out. So different from where an interact, non-interactive, obviously, where the artists would get paid directly. But basically, going off this uh, semi-famous billboard chart that was going around, a graphic that showed where a dollar goes in the music mm -hmm. business, uh, generally speaking, the interactive service, whether it's Apple or Spotify or whatever, uh, out of a dollar, they're keeping what, like 28, 29 cents? Correct. Okay. And then where's the rest going? Well, the rest goes to the record label and then to the publishers and the songwriters of it. So main, the main part of it going to the record label and then distributed out from there. And then there's obviously the part that goes to the, to the publishers and the songwriters of it there as well. Okay. And so of that, my understanding is it's around 12 or 13 cents that's getting split between the... Publishers and songwriters? The publishers yep. and songwriters. Yeah. And then the rest is going to the owner of the master. Correct. There's direct deals that no one talks about yet, but they're happening and those are all like secret, but they shouldn't be. And I have, I take huge issue with the fact that they're secret, but a lot of the platforms are doing direct deals. Some of them are taking money on royalties. Some of them aren't. And yeah, that wasn't in the article, but. Yeah. So, well, direct deals are worth talking about because this is, uh, I, I've, I'm in full transparency. I have testified in front of the copyright royalty board back in the aughts on behalf of Rhapsody when I was working there. Um, but I was, I tried to make it clear to the judges, I was speaking as much as a musician as I was a dude who was representing Rhapsody. The reason I was afraid of direct deals uh, for non-interactive radio services at, at that time was I knew as a guy in a band, the only time I ever got money uh, was when I wrote a song and my PRO sent 50% of it to me, even if I wasn't recouped with my publisher. Uh, and now through SoundExchange, when as a performer I was it's getting 50% from SoundExchange, even though I still theoretically owe Warner Brothers $393,460.27. <laughs> um, and the problem, to my mind, 
uh, with doing a direct deal is that Wait, and I'm, you're four hundred thousand dollars unrecouped. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, congratulations. And I, and, and <laughs> another a, a thing that I used to feel like a failure because of I'm that. Like sixteen thousand dollars unrecouped. Okay, I was I was that I'm, I'm, I remained that that much unrecouped, <laughs> but I was I was complaining about it to David Lowry once. I was like, yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed by it. And it, David Lowry, Camper Van Beethoven, sort of a demagogue about artist rights issues. Uh, he, he also spent some time as a quant uh, for some public equities guy. Uh, and he said, no, I was talking to these traders and I told them how recoupment works. And when I told them like, you know, Cracker was unrecouped or Camper was unrecouped, they're like, dude, that means you won. <laughs> That's you said you got a better deal. And I was like, yeah. he got a better deal. What are you talking about? Yeah. I, I got so, shit. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm not $395,000 in the hole. I'm ahead. Do you guys know what recoup versus unrecoup means? You should, like, you should take a moment and explain that. I mean, recoup, recoupment, basically, okay. The label makes an estimation on, makes a guess on what you're worth and what they're going to get out of you. This is based on a million different factors, but let's just, let's just keep it at straight record deals, royalty rates that come back from those records. They advance you money based on marketing, commitment, and straight up money in your pocket. So a lot of that is just straight up, like he gets a check for, the, the idea is you spent this much money coming up with your creative ideas, going into the studio, paying people, engineers and, and session player performers, buying your guitar, all these things. I'm going to pay you back for those costs of yours and then here's a little bit more based on what we think we're gonna make off of this. And we're going to then, you're, until, you're gonna get nothing until that, recoup, that money gets recouped. So if you got a $500,000 advance and only you know, recouped $102,000, you're left with a $398,000 unrecouped bill. So, but but you got, he got that money, but he there, got that half Wait, but there's dollars. a secret. That three hundred. Oh yeah, there's a lot of other. Yeah, bullshit the hundred two thousand dollars that he's talking about being paid back got paid back not out of what the record company grossed from selling our records at a ten dollar wholesale rate. They got paid back a hundred thousand dollars out of the one dollar and fifty cents royalty right. that we got. Exactly. So they were still there's clearing eight fifty. But yeah. but the 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 genesis of the idea is that he got a check. And How big was the check? Actually, that's a good question. Uh, it was basically one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars for each album, and we spent every, none of that went cool. into my pocket. We spent all the money on each yeah. record. But they financed the the yeah. creation of this work, yeah. and yeah. and now they but, own it in perpetuity. So they basically advanced us money to make them a product that they, they own it in forever. perpetuity. Or there's no term. Yeah. yeah. Oh. No. Anyway, so that's a we're, master we're, purchase we're, we're digressing. The, the, digress. the, the, this came up because we were talking about direct licensing, and the point here is. The reason I was afraid of direct deals in the aughts is that, for argument's sake, every dollar that was going into Sound Exchange, 50 cents of that was going to me and 50 cents of that was going to the record company, yes. um, me and my bandmates. Uh, however, so you can understand that from the record company's point of view, it might actually make more sense for them to go to a Pandora or some other radio service and say, guess what, we'll give you a direct license to our catalog for only... In it where we would normally be paying a dollar, now we're only going to be paying 80 cents. So the service is right. paying less. The record company is theoretically taking in less, but they're actually taking in more because whereas before they would have had to give me 40 cents, they get to keep it because I'm unrecouped. So instead of making 50 cents from that dollar that was coming into me, they're now making 80 cents from that dollar. Pandora's happy, label's happy, I'm fucked. So the, the direct <laughs> deals that I'm talking about are when, like, for example, a Spotify, hypothetically, calls an artist and says, okay, so if you look at the top 50 tracks on, uh, or there's 50 tracks on today's hot songs, hot tracks, whatever it's called, the, the most important playlist on Spotify, their version of Top 40 Radio. Uh, 
last I checked, there are 47 of them were on major record labels. Two of them were basically like random tracks that don't have proper labels that have like an indie label, but it's really like they created a label for that song because the song took off. Um, and then one song on there, the guy's name was Joel Adams, and he has a direct deal with Spotify. So effectively, the only way that you get on those charts is if you, and those are curated. Those aren't the top 50 play counts on Spotify. Those are 50 songs that Spotify thinks are the hottest things in the world that they want to put on blast. And the only one that was not on a major label was uh, the one that they have 15% of. And I think that's a very slippery slope. And those deals get compared to Apple deals. And the major difference is Apple takes $0 on those. So every time you've ever seen an exclusive or anything like that, there's no mo the money is going one way, and that's it. Apple doesn't. Apple's not a record label. All the things about like, oh, Jimmy Iovine, like, is he's he's telling the truth. There's no record deals, and so the way you just defined direct deal, they're using the same language to say direct deal about something that's really just record deal or production deal. They're saying you could also you could use their uh, their uh, production facilities in Stockholm, but they take money on it. They're calling those, uh, fuck, I forget what they're it's called. basically original content. Yeah, so, so, but they're taking money on it. So I would create original content and say, here's X amount of money to go do it, or we'll do it for you, but you own it. And they'll say, we'll only feature you if, they won't straight up say it, but it's, you know, it's like. But the main idea it. behind a lot of those exclusives also is to gain users for the 9.99 subscription, not necessarily for of those ones. So it's really, you know, those exclusives come to as you know, title bases a business off it, yeah. to um, make sure that you have the biggest players. You put on exclusive by them, Beyonce being, you know, obviously the biggest case here, and that uh, the reason that you sign up for 9.99 a month is to get a hold of that content. Okay, so let, let's jump to exclusives because they're uh, they're yes. in the news a bit recently. Um, when I was at Rhapsody, when I was at Google, I always told my bosses, I can't look any label or artist in the eyes and say it's in your best interest to give this to us exclusively, um, unless we're writing them a massive check, which is not in our interests either. Um, so my favorite types of exclusives at both Google Play and Rhapsody uh, were when it was content that wouldn't have existed if we hadn't gotten involved. It was basically original content, where we were helping create something um, and in those cases, similarly to what you're saying, Sean, we wouldn't own it. We would say, hey, we're going to pay to produce this content. You will own it. And in exchange for us underwriting the creation of this content, you will grant us an exclusive digital license for you know three months, six months, a year, whatever whatever we could so haggle over. So that's the sponsor and promote yeah. uh, model. So to my mind, that was a reasonable... But you're also going to surround that content with a shitload of promotion that they wouldn't otherwise have. That's and the whole point. Reach it's a the, ton of their, users. Their, their, yeah. their incentive for, for you know going into the studio with us and spending some time with us and giving us something that no other service had was they were going to get a massive promotional push around not just that piece of content, but whatever they were in the process of promoting. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, that was a reasonable way, an artist-friendly way, a service-friendly way, and importantly, a user-friendly way of coming up with an exclusive content strategy. What other strategies have you guys seen, pursued? What do you think are good and bad about them? I mean, you can obviously talk to the, the Frank Ocean kind of recent developments. Personally, I think that exclusives are not that good for the industry in the long term, but I think in a way they're kind of inevitable. Um, it reminds me a lot, I've been reading a lot about game theory recently, and uh, there's something called the prisoner's dilemma, something that um, John Nash, famous mathematician, yes. kind of developed a lot. And essentially what it says is that um, every agent acts in their best interest 
knowing roughly more or less what the other agents are going to do. And the sum of that actually creates a worse situation for everybody, even though you're kind of acting in your best interest. And so the analog with the streaming industry is, you know, everybody's doing all these exclusive strategies, but at the end of the day, for the end consumer, we're seeing more and more fragmentation. So as an industry, we all might lose out. So that's my personal thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's dead on. And um, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys know what I did at Apple or, or read any of the stuff that I wrote about, but I'm not for exclusives and I don't mind saying it. I argued on behalf of putting things, of, of getting rid of windowing and, and making things just brought to you by. But you know, I did a lot of those deals, and I created a lot of that original content. And um, I believe that the way, to, the value in these these moments in time are to look at the campaigns that we created, and that's what's important about it. I don't think the fact that they were exclusive is matters. It just happens to be if you look at Apple Music exclusives, they were they had dope campaigns surrounding them. And examine those campaigns and take lessons on what was done there. And most of the time, it was a lot of stuff off-platform in addition to the on-platform stuff. Like, you know, most of the work done with Drake is not just, you know, it's not just on Apple, but it's associated. And it creates this whole um, world. And, and yeah, just to your point, like, the reason why I couldn't win the argument of, like, let's not make this exclusive, let's let everyone do it, is because... We like we're looking at the other guy because the we have to stay ahead of the other guy because um, that was our advantage. We were better at those things than other people. We had a bigger checkbook and we had better relationships with the artists than the other guys did. And this was our way to to stay ahead. It wasn't our way to make the best, do the best work. It was our way to 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 fuck with the rest of them. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, just to add to this, if, I'm always struck with exclusives. They're you mentioned it's it's about promoting. I say to you, is is this one of the industry problems where you have a fantastic amount of content, both created and existing, and this promotion problem? Today, it's kind of overt. I have to sponsor it. I have to put materials yeah. together. Is it really about bringing that incredible amount of content? If you're in a subscription streaming type service today, is it about building the tools, the ecosystem to promote that on an individual basis? So lower the cost. It is hugely expensive to promote and build, which leads to those three months, six month or 6,000 year exclusives. Um, how about, and this is a challenge to all of us in the ecosystem, are there ways for us to dramatically lower that promotion and individualize it so that people say discovery, recommendation, all that, and one of my big bug bugaboos now is as we move to um, subscription streaming and we grow the overall industry, um, are there ways that we can promote um, content with artists or artists can do self-promotion to bring it out to the masses without spending the incredible amount of investment that's done today which leads to those exclusives or lockouts or other things? I think more than anything, it's about noise. And when you don't have, like I'm starting, I'm working on something new right now that's in the fashion space. And a lot of what I'm encountering is a lot of product that are just the same as everything else. And the point, of, when, I, when I examine why, are, why is this leather jacket getting more attention than that leather jacket? They're made in the same places by similar people. They look the same, whatever. A lot of it is, is you're spending money to differentiate yourself and get it out there wider, more promotion. That is just noise to me. And the same thing happens in the music space. When you look at like Frank Ocean, for example, that wasn't about money. That was about 
a really unique artist doing really unique forms of creating amazing moments around his music. It's not, <clears throat> it's only expensive because there's a bunch of people making bullshit. <laughs> like most music, like another thing that I wrote about was like, we have too many songs being sent to us. Like discovery is ridiculous and we can't, you know, I, 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 look, I did a breakdown of like how many songs Spotify wants me to listen to in a week and it was 252. And I consume more music than anyone I know and I don't really need 252 new great songs every week because they don't exist. I think there's 10. So I think that we need to focus on really unique, awesome content and finding touch points around that content to surround all the different types of media that relate to the centerpiece. So they're tent poles. The album, Frank Ocean's album was a tent pole. Yes. But we might have heard about, you might have been walking down Fairfax and saw the pop-up store. Or you might have saw, seen a t-shirt online. Or you might have been at the MoMA and seen the Tom Sachs exhibit or something and looked up Tom Sachs and seen, oh shit, Frank Ocean did a film with Tom Sachs and watched the film. There's all these different, really awesome, high quality ways to interact with Frank Ocean. And that all brings you to the tentpole piece of a great album. The, all these things aren't expensive. It's just really hard to, you have to make good art and not everyone's making good art. So when you're making like, when you're a DJ and you're making like the next bullshit EDM track, like yeah, it's expensive to get it out there, but who I, cares? I, th I think there's like, a tautology there, because on the one hand, you're saying, hey, Frank Ocean was special because he did all these special things. On the other hand, the artists we're talking about at this point in the conversation are Drake and Frank Ocean. So Justine uh, Sky, I spent $22,000 on a Justine Sky video and got 700 million hits on it. That's it, all I spent was 22,000, don't repeat that, whatever, like, if there's press in here, just don't print that, please. But yeah, I did that as, a, as an experiment, and I spent $22,500, Okay, and well then, we got 700 million hits. Okay, then that's a nice lead into this other piece, and which no is... No one knows who she is before that. To my mind, the, you know, the Pandora just announced this morning, I'm not quite sure what they announced, but it was a, a, a re-announcement of their artist marketing platform. Um, and artist services to me are the most important yet undercovered aspect of where these streaming services are going in the next five, ten years. Uh, a lot of times, the, you know, the way I look at it is these services consider the content owners as their suppliers. They supply them the content that these services then distribute to customers. Um, and they look at the listeners that they're trying to get subscription dollars from as their customers. I think there's a, there's a triangle there and they're missing the hypotenuse, if you will. Uh, where basically all the listeners on a platform can also be a product that are sold back to, or not necessarily sold, but are served back to the suppliers. So the artists and the content owners can also be customers in this equation. Um, and I think there's so much focus, and you know, YouTube and Pandora are just as often invoked as adversaries as they are as partners by the creative community. Um, and when that happens, people are focusing on how teeny tiny the the per play payments are. Um, but there's there's just tons of money to be mined from helping the artists connect directly to the listeners that a platform is, is, is bringing to them. Uh, and I think AMP and what Pandora's been doing with AMP, what I've seen is they're like at least 12, if not 18 months ahead of any other subscription service yeah. when it comes to providing a platform like that. Um, in, in, in not just saying like, oh, hey, here's a way to connect you to, to your audience that actually gets us more content, but actually gets those artists more money and more revenue. Um, and so the challenge to me, to my mind is, 
uh, not how do you do a really big Frank Ocean exclusive or an exclusive, a really big or cheap twenty-two thousand uh, dollar promotion with with a developing artist. It's how do you do all of those things at scale? How do you make it possible right. for the tens of thousands of artists in your platform to get discovered by you know the fans who are going to who are going to like them, and not just get discovered by them, but get merchandise bought by them, get tickets bought by them. Yes. actually generate some revenue. So I'm just going to throw that out there as a topic for you guys to chew on. Who's doing good with artist services and what needs to be done? Who's doing good? Yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I, think I, I think we have a ways to go there. <laughs> so you said scale, I heard, which yep. I think is really important. And then I heard diversification is a term I like to use, which is um, it's about the merchandising, about the art, uh, multiple pieces of art, and connecting with communities and so forth. Um, yes, AMP's one of those. I think Apple... I think Spotify, I think there's a lot of independents that are looking at this. Um, who's doing it well? Because you've got a social aspect, you've got feedback to the artist, you've got the whole kind of promotion um, and focused on that. You might have multiple. Um, I think we have a ways to go. And, th and that leads to my other one about how to, how to lower dramatically maybe the cost and in the process actually maybe give the power back to the artist to be more creative. If you take Ocean, whatever, I mean, very clever, knowing a lot of the ecosystem. There's a lot of stuff going behind the scenes. Why can't we make that the barrier a lot lower for um, tens of thousands of artists, like you said? But, but there aren't tens of thousands of artists that should be out there, frankly. Like, there aren't 10,000 great artists. Like, like I, that, that's well, one of the... I, I disagree, yeah. and, not, and not, not, this is not a subjective point of view of mine. This is, uh, this is objective based on data. One of the things that surprised me the most at Rhapsody, was, which was just a, a US-based service, and, and then I saw the number expand when I went to Google Play and we, were, we had a global service, uh, I tracked month in and month out uh, sort of, you know, who, what, who the most popular artists were. Um, because I was running an editorial team and we were doing custom editorial and so we had to know whenever we had a big project, like we're going to do album recommendations, uh, what was the percentage, what number of artists did we have to cover to get the most percentage of use, right? Uh, and in the early days, back in like 2001, if we covered the top thousand artists, that was covering like 90% of our use. And then eventually that number expanded to like 5,000. There were 5,000 artists that we really had to cover because they had, you know, I call them middle class musicians. They actually had enough of a devoted fan base that they could make a living making music and playing it around yeah. the world. Yeah. Eventually, there's, when there's I 10,000, when I left in 20, well, wait, when I left in 2010, not 100,000. When I left in 2010, that number was 15,000. And then I went to Google, and all of a sudden, I wasn't just looking at a U.S. audience; I was looking at a global or audience. Global. That was 50,000. There are 50,000 artists. I don't know them all. I don't like them all, but there are 15,000. There are 50,000 Wilcos out there, basically. Yeah, and who I, could argue against a world where 500,000 people are artists and yeah. earning a living from that? I think that's a great future. Yeah, like, yeah and I, I want to build on the same thing when, at TiVo or Rovi Music is if you include a worldview, um, our numbers are they're, they're, they're in the, the hundreds of thousands of artists, um, not, not just U.S., but I'm, yeah. now I'm talking about whether we're, we're in Asia, India. Um, there, there's a lot of fantastic... Now, uh, granted, a lot of content that I personally would not enjoy or love and may never listen to, but artist-wise, yes, I would, I would yeah, say. There are, there, a, I mean, again, it's not a subjective opinion. It's just an objective fact that there are 50,000 artists that have devoted fan bases that can support them. I, th I think maybe what Sean's saying, though, is that, and I'm not going to speak for you, but I think, you know, there's, 
you still have almost the 90-10 rule. You know, 10% of the artists that are out there are earning 90% of the, of the income that's coming. So when you talk to doing these exclusives, the reason you're bringing up Drake and Frank Ocean and things like that, these are people that actually can propel those types of campaigns. So, you know, when you're talking about the middle class musician, which is awesome and which is... It's, That's more about user-generated playlists. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so, but I think when you start talking about these larger campaigns and spending time and resources on that's when you start going for more the easy target, I guess. Right, so, so even, even when I was a play, we did a lot with original content. I was proud of a lot of our promotional initiatives. We tried to focus heavily on discovery, um, and we had a big staff, but it was still the case that you had to know us or have somebody pitching us on your behalf in order to even qualify I for agree, one of those programs. I agree, that's a huge problem. So what, what I like about AMP, and I don't work for Pandora, I got no you know, reason to be singing their praises, but this is just from personally using the, or watching people that I was working with use the platform. Uh, so Freeform, my company, creates mobile artist apps. We did one for GEZ in December. Um, and, you know, we promote them in, through organic ways, you know, with all the artist social channels. We buy some Facebook ads. I have never seen anything perform. We got more installs out of uh, an AmpCast thing that GEZ did, just an audio drop that got played for some percentage of his listeners on Pandora. Um, you know, when they heard one of his new songs, either just before or after, they'd hear GEZ go, yo, you like my new album? Download my new app, click here, and, and install my new app and hear my new album for free. I've been in this business, like doing digital merchandising for 16, 17 years now. I have never seen anything perform at the level that that thing did. It was like 50x. This was free, right? It cost him nothing. Uh, and we saw 50x the installs that, of that that we did from like our next most successful channel, which was Facebook. Um, so, so that, to my mind, is if you can open something like that up to everybody, uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be this massive Frank Ocean Drake campaign. It's just giving the, artists the tools. Tier. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I don't mean but, negative with that. I, I agree that you asked the scale question, and I'm drawing attention because you're. I think you're still going to have the mega promotion and in, in, in any kind of entertainment media, um, and then you have an incredibly long, maybe flat tail. Um, agreed, agreed on that. But then you have a, a, a wealth of content where on a world basis mm -hmm. that artists today, I think, it's tough. And, and tools, techniques, and platforms, and I, I, my opinion is we have a ways to but, go as an industry. But I think what's changing is technology, right? It's, it's revolutionizing everything. So all of a sudden today, you know, it has taken Pandora a long time to, to, to do this. Uh, and, and, you know, I think Shamal, who came in and actually propelled that AMP platform, is doing an incredible job now. But, you know, they've been thinking about other stakeholders. But it's clear that if they want to get closer to the artists, that's the key stakeholder that they really need to be thinking about, and that's you know where it's coming from. And I think now you can do that with technology. And if you know I'm the ten thousandth most popular band in France, or well, they're not in France, but you know in Arkansas or something, I can look at that data. Mm -hmm. so, so, so how do you guys go about promoting your wait, content? Can I just on the GEZ thing? Sure. I I consider GEZ the exact same thing as what. So GEZ is the fourth biggest artist on SoundCloud. GEZ is a lot bigger than Frank Ocean. That promotion that you're talking about was the most ex most money that Pandora ever spent on anything. They spent a shitload of money on that. It was TV ads. It was tons of in YouTube ads, tons of uh, media buy. So that wasn't like out of nowhere. And GEZ is a top 40 rapper, like mo more famous he than is Frank now. Ocean. In, Dece in December, he hadn't even gone gold. When we this, did when a deal. We did a deal with him last year, right after Drake. He was, he's huge. He, yeah, yes, he, is, he was on the verge of breaking, but he had not gone gold. He's now platinum. Me, myself, and I was out. 
This was this was the album that put out me myself and yeah. I. This was in December. But he was on top forty. He was going. He was on. I mean, it, it, the the point is just that it didn't have to be G Easy, right? This the Ampcast program yeah. that I saw used that was free. But they spent a lot of money advertising it. Not concurrently with this. They weren't. Pandora okay. was not running G Easy ads. They were. They had. A, they shot a commercial with G Easy using Amp. Not at this time. Okay. I. I. I that's how I got it. I, I saw a commercial that they shot. Okay. Anyway, Nico, how do you how do you guys go about promoting your content? <laughs> Let's keep moving. Uh, you know, with us being a platform, it's all about the curators. You mm -hmm. know, so and we build the tools for them to kind of go out there and, and promote as well. And so I think you know that's coming back to what I was saying about the technology. You know, it's getting better and better, and you can do a lot more. You know, being a DIY artist is now more feasible than ever before. So I think that that's really kind of it is helping to level the playground a bit. Yeah, you said the you said the c word, um, which is curation, uh, and so I'm I'm interested in, in t you know, and we're also talking about discovery. So when even when a service isn't promoting a specific artist, how how do streaming services you know the big challenge is you've got this massive catalog of tens of millions of songs. Uh, it's just you overwhelm customers with too much choice and you have to give them a way to sort of slice through the catalog and find the stuff that's going to resonate with them. Uh, so different services sort of, you know, strike that balance in different ways. Some use robots and algorithms, others, you know, promote their human curators. Uh, what's the right formula? Um, you know, I have, to, I have to admit, you know, Spotify Discover Weekly is pretty popular. It's done an amazing job. Matt Ogle and his team have like really, really, I think, struck a, struck a chord there. Um, with us at Mixcloud, it's all about human curation. That's really the cornerstone of what we do. So we want to empower, whether it be radio presenters or DJs or radio stations themselves, we believe that you discover the best new music through other people. So, I, I agree with that. But um, now, on your service, how are people propelled to the, to the front? So on your front page, like, are those the people that obviously are getting the most listeners, but then how do you circulate those people out? Because obviously they're getting the most listeners because yeah. when I go there, I mean, I do the same thing because I want to check those guys out because they're getting the most listens. How do you yeah, search and discover it, from there? It's really just a question of kind of how popular they are. And I will fully admit that there's a bit of a feedback loop there. You know, people, if you rise to the top of the chart, you're more likely to get discovered. Well, it's like being on top 10 apps on or exactly. whatever. You know, it's like, yeah. once you're there, you're there. Yeah, you know? yeah. so that's a challenge. Yeah. I admit that, um, you know. Yeah, I wonder if it's something, you know, on your guys' side, how you guys are watching who you think, you know, you kind of have your corner. And you guys may have that, I don't know, have like your corner of your picks of who you think the upcoming D best shows are, DJs, etc. Not yet, but that's something we've been thinking about. Hey, we'll talk. Like cool. <laughs> you want to get in there, huh? You know, you know just add to... I, at at TiVo Music, it's it's the huge raging debate, which is the machine learning and human curation. And trust me, for those that know AMG and um, back in the days, it's it's still pretty healthy um, back and forth. So I, for us, it's absolutely positively both. Um, and I fundamentally don't believe that you're going to eliminate the human curation piece. The question, though, about promotion, you can promote with humans, you can promote with machines, it's still just promotion. Um, so I'm not sure that that part, you know, really is a fundamentally different piece of it. But I think the combination of the two is really cool. You can get some scale, and you can also have curation on both. Um, I think the question really is, how, how do we scale both uh, 
I think is where the industry's going. And then I want to add one last piece on the streaming. It is an opportunity, I believe fundamentally, for all of us here to grow the industry, to, to expose individuals to content and not necessarily have to be the front door uh, website kind of experience, but actually present them in a stream, in a flow. And if I'm a consumer and I'm, I'm being delighted or encouraged, the ecosystem then, Sean and we chatted about this earlier, our focus really should be about growing this industry. Right now, streaming is is very small percentage of the marketplace. The potential to grow that is tremendous over the next five years. All of us, how to present you know better and better delightful experiences, and some may be a top 40, some may be a mid-tail, a mix of those. I mean, there's all kinds of folks around the world, but the point is there's a huge amount of growth that we, we all should be focused on, you know, growing this, this streaming space because it opens up so many possibilities, I believe, for everybody, for artists, for the consumer, for the ecosystem. And the question is always how to do that. And you ask the scale question again. Sean, how did you guys approach that discovery piece, humans versus algorithms at Apple? Beats one. Uh, so, I mean, my personal opinion is that Discover Weekly is the best thing the best version of algorithmic playlisting that has yet to exist. I agree that Matt does a great job. However, he doesn't do as good of a job as Scott Venner does. Scott Venner is just a dude who finds great music. He's the guy, he's a music supervisor and host at Beats One, works with Pharrell, and he's got the best taste in the world as of people that I know. And I think Scott Venner should be a rock star. I think everyone in this room should be subscribing to the, what Scott Venner thinks is cool playlist. And that's always going to beat out it's Discover Weekly. For me, for a passive listener, it's totally cool to get 30 songs that are, you know, anywhere between six weeks and 25 years or, you know, 100 years old. Um, you know, they, they, they put in a lot of classics, so it's just great. Um, but yeah, but to break a new record, it's never going to be a computer. It's always going to be a, a person listening to something saying this is, it's always, it always, it takes humans to create the data to build the algorithms. So inherently, when you say, I mean, th there's a there's a an issue with saying if you're fully algorithmic, it doesn't exist. It just it takes humans to create the data. Um, but but yeah, but Apple's answer to that is Beats One. It's it's not a radio station. It's a filter. And um, I'm not here to like be the you know <laughs> I left the company. I don't even work there anymore. I just I do love it. Um, I think Beats One is great. Zane Lowe runs it, and it's a it's effectively a radio station, but it is part of an ecosystem play. So like when I would create a new music video or premiere something at the top of uh, you know Hot Tracks or something, it would be Zane Lowe would do an interview with that artist on the same day. And then we'd have social get behind it. And we would have all these different forms of discovery and get involved in the way that you're, that you're used to consuming music, not just create this place that say, come over here and this is your place where you discover music. Like if you don't, if you do it anywhere else, you're doing it wrong. You gotta do it right here. I think Apple is doing a really cool job at interacting where the user is, rather than just telling them, this is it, and it's only 50 songs, and that's the end. You know, Beats One has different genres. They have different countries. It's, it's cool, it represents, so you talk about like the 10,000, 50,000, 100,000. Beats One represents that, they'll do, like Nafi, like a DJ collective from Mexico. They give them a week-long takeover. Like I had never heard of Nafi before. They have like a thousand followers on online, and they're awesome. And someone at Beats One knew them that I, I didn't. And yeah, they wouldn't have been in my in my limited purview of like artists to do cool shit with, but they were for Beats One. 
All right, so in, in the 15 years since uh, the first three on-demand subscription services launched in 2001, I've witnessed uh, waxing and waning of, there are periods when there's like, you know, seven or 10 people in the marketplace and then there's a wave of consolidation and, you know, some go out of business and some get acquired and then there's an expansion again and then there's a contraction. Um, so where in that waxing and waning of diversity and consolidation do you guys think we are and who do you think will survive? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'll speak to exactly, but, um, you know, I think competition is good, but I think too much competition kind of, then we start competing, they start competing towards each other for these exclusives for putting it out first, et cetera. And then all of a sudden the listener that is on one serv service A is not getting the content on service B. And I think that keeps people from subscribing to any service. And I think the whole idea is to gain subscribers to these services, whether it's two great services that people can choose from or three that, uh, you know, that they have either the most familiarity with or that they enjoy better. One speaks to one better than the other. The idea is to grow the streaming space yeah. and make sure that everybody is on there paying for music no matter what service it is. But I do agree that I think too much competition, it, it, you know, it's, it gets too cloudy. And I think... Um, if you can nail it down to two services, this two or three, maybe, this is what we're doing, this is how it should be done. I personally think that there's, I think we've kind of reached a saturation at the kind of $10 a month price point. I think the subscription model is clearly one that's working. So I think now the next question is, you know, how do we introduce something that's $20 a month or $3 a month or, you know, the different kind of formats to capture all the value and the, the d different types of demand that are there. So I think that's where it's gonna go. Okay. Let me ask the same question in a different way. Uh, let's just do sort of the main players in the marketplace. What are their strengths and what are their weaknesses? So let's start with Spotify. What's good and bad about it? Best working product on the market. I best agree. tech, best algorithms, best... User face, I agree. Yeah, I think it's all, all of that is the best. That much better than Apple. Well, I think also is that that most of your friends are on Spotify. So it's easier to share a playlist. No, it's but, they, to... but they're, they're, they're killing, that's so, that's what was, I love that about Spotify, but they're killing that. They're, they're burying that feature. Are they really? 100%. Yes. Oh, they've yes. been doing it for a long time. And this is one of the huge issues. Steve Savoka was here and he just left Spotify and we had a really, I just left Apple and he, we both did the same thing at our companies. And uh, we had a really funny breakfast talking about all this stuff. But yeah, that's the, the most beautiful thing about Spotify was when Sean Parker came in and created the socialization of it with Facebook where you can share your, you can see what all your friends are listening to. They're not yeah. promoting that at all. It's extremely hard to find. But you can still and, share, say, my playlist with your friend. Correct. Yeah, I mean, you could do that on everything. Right, right. There, but Spotify, just... it used to be really easy. It used to be the main habit that they pushed for you. And then they yeah. got rid of it. I, I Why? have a... That's my question. <laughs> All right. Uh, not, I don't. Yeah, if I get quoted on this, it'll I think go on that too on Spotify too, like, as well as like when you have. If, ask me after, and I'll tell you why. But I don't. <laughs> I don't. I just don't want to get quoted on it for the why. But yeah, there's uh, a really specific reason for for non-interactive services. Who's the who's the who's the best right now, and what could they do better? SiriusXM. Ooh, that's a tough. In U.S. Yeah, we're in the U.S., so sure. <laughs> It's really only probably three. If I think of uh, Cirrus, Pandora, maybe iHeart. Uh, Your favorite? Yeah, for me, it's probably Pandora. 
I don't use any non-interactive services. I don't get it. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> you want to go after that one? You're allowed to say Mixcloud. Yeah, I'm biased, of course. I'm going to say Mixcloud. <laughs> Wait, you consider that's non-interactive? Yeah, yeah. We pay yeah. Sound Exchange every month. All right. So. Well, I see Mixcloud maybe in my definition of interactive versus non-interactive. I'm not. This is this is not my my world of these definitions. I, but Mixcloud, I make a point to go listen to the DJ Kubert mix on Mixcloud, and that is my interact. That's my lean forward. I guess I think about it lean forward versus lean back, where I am going to be a passive listener and I'm going to have somebody go tell me what to listen to with no control over it. That's yeah, but you can use these services like Pandora to your advantage yeah. to where, you know, I've I have now spent a few years building this, what I think is an ultimate station, you know, starting with like the jam, adding the Pixies, and then all of a sudden putting Portishead on there or something like that. And then going in there and as it goes through, start liking things, and then start mixing around and putting other, other, um, other performer or so other artists in there. And all of a sudden you build this Uber station, at least for yourself. Um, you know, and I have different ones that, you know, go through whatever time of day it is or whatever it is. But uh, in that case, it's passive. But it's still a little aggressive. The library is limited. As long as it obeys the, the sound recording performance complements. The library is limited. And I do think that um, you, know, you have to think of things like Mixcloud as well, too, as a non-interactive service because those are excellent. Those are, those are these great DJs that are, yes, they're, it's passive listening, but it's still being creative, new Features. All right, we've come to the to. audience Q&A portion. So. Oh, can wow. I, can I just say a, yeah. a, a con about Spotify? And I love Spotify and what they're doing there. Actually, about all the uh, services in general, I think that there's a little bit of a um, homogeneity across all of them, and they kind of all look like Excel spreadsheets at the end of the day. And I personally, I don't know if anybody else feels like they missed the days of MySpace when you could actually get really creative have crazy gifs and colors and all this shit going on. Oh, you I pronounce like it with a J. a little bit, so I don't know if anybody <laughs> else feels like that's that. That's a flashback. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, the hand right there with the watch on it was the first one that shot up. There's a microphone running to you. Hey. Hey. Um, so I think the thing that we should uh, maybe consider here is empathy. Um, so, like, what I hear a lot and what I experience a lot, so I'm a heavy, heavy music user, especially discoverer. Like, I love discovering new music, especially in the world of um, electronic, like, and, you know, every, there are so many sub-genres in there that you can become an expert. And I think, like, when I hear up, up on the panel, especially, it's like, well, we know what's better. Like, you know, we're, we're experts. I know what's better. And that is, and, and as somebody who listens to, you know, different type of music, I believe that there's different people out here. Like if you think of a bell curve, there's people out in the wings that are out here as well. And I don't think that we hug our fans to, or our users to identify who those people are out there and really hug them and give them the deserved credit that they do naturally. They just naturally do it. There are people who know, like, I'm really currently into Synthwave right now, like Carpenter Brood, I just saw them. I had no idea who they were, and they blew me away. And like, why aren't they featured or whatever? And so there's this empathy piece of like, why aren't these other artists being featured? And they, they want to hug too, like what's going on, because because for whatever... Okay, I'm, I'm going to cut you off there because I don't think there's going to be a question mark at the end of wherever you get to. I think it's a cool. perfectly valid point. 
Um, and one thing that I will say in, hopefully you will consider this in support of what you just said, uh, a thing I've been on about for over a decade is that I don't think we need tastemakers. I think tastemakers are a 20th century construct. I think we need park rangers. There are, there's just this musical jungle of a vast amount of content in these subscription services. And the best ones the, uh, will be the ones that figure out not on f how to promote one thing to 10 million people, but how to find the 10 million things that 10 million people wouldn't have known about otherwise. Uh, it's about curating the experience for each individual user, and that's something that wasn't possible in the 20th century. Grand Tapestry is on uh, Hot Tracks on Apple Music right now. Like, okay. that's like the top featured thing. They feature deep electronic music all the time. A guy named Justin Montag has been doing it for like 15 years. Things are at the top slider all the time. Like, I, I play techno music. That's, I'm a DJ in my other cool. stuff. I see, I see many happens. hands. Uh, does it, does, do they all end with question marks? <laughs> okay, in the back there? No telling us your personal stories and not asking questions, please. In another panel, this is uh, Al Glenn, KPOO, San Francisco. In an earlier Fucking panel... radio voice right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. In an earlier session, you a got question was asked... voices up here. The question of profitability was mentioned. You can tell us stories. <laughs> Whoever comes out under the dust when it settles in terms of shakeout, consolidation, and the ecosystem, uh, regardless if it's on-demand, interactive, or not, for VCs, as I understand it, capital goes where the opportunities are. And if there are no financial opportunities that exist because there's no profitability in the ecosystem, particularly in the streaming space, it's a major concern. So I would like to hear from each of the panelists. When it comes to profitability or the lack of thereof, and what are the factors as things are going forward from the financial community, Wall Street, and those who are funding currently bleeding streaming services, whether it's Pandora, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. I would like to hear your thoughts from each one of you when it comes to making money or the inability of being able to make money. Start with Michael and go down. Yeah, so first off, I want to I want to share those that haven't looked at the... Um, RIAA put out their semi-annual report, and they're, they're showing now for the first half of the year, the streaming now has exceeded, uh, is on a growth, has exceeded something like 8%. Uh, it'll probably be 12% for the year since I think 1999 or 2001. So in other words, the business of streaming is growing and is on a trajectory to be very profitable if we continue scaling the business. So first point I want to make is um, streaming is a growth engine now. Yes. Go take a look at it in the U.S. Driven by subscription. Yes. We have low market penetration. So if I'm a capitalist, I look at it and say, how can I drive? So if you take that streaming is now generating positive revenue, um, there's opportunity, low market penetration. How can I drive scale? That's what was just suggested here. How can we grow the market space? And I think that's the creative experiences. I think it's probably a mix of data and, and long tail and the whole, whole ecosystem play. Yeah. 
Wait, I mean, it's definitely about scale. I mean, it's just a matter of once you scale it up, obviously that's when you're on the subscription side is where you're going to start seeing the income come in. Um, when you talk about non-interactive radio on the sound exchange side, it, to 12 years ago, I guess, when we made our first distribution, it was for $20 million. Last year, we gave out $804 million. This year, we'll give out close to a billion. So when you talk about growth, that's some definite growth. Uh, other guys? I, uh, 1999, Napster was launched. Let's say it was 15 years. Like Spotify got it right in, let's, let's call it 2014. It might have been earlier or whatever. But there was about 15 years of disruption that was necessary. It was beautiful. It was awesome. It's over. It exists. We figured it out. Like As you guys just said, we figured out the tech, we figured out the model, and we figured out the payments. Stop starting new companies to disrupt the big guys it fucks with the ecosystem go build shit that's going to make apple spotify youtube amazon facebook whatever the the ones that are going to the dust is basically settling now it's not like so far in the future there's going to be there's going to be a couple more acquisitions but like if you're not daniel eck or alex long or tim westergren or one of those people like you didn't do you didn't get your unicorn it didn't happen it's not going to happen stop trying stop creating these niche products that are going to like do the this of that make awesome shit that's proprietary tech or proprietary like cool content, cool culture, cool community that's going to bring stuff to this ecosystem. Like you said, there's low penetration. Get more people in the United States and the entire world to subscribe to music streaming services. This model is awesome and it will help with all, like like you talk about Freeform, like if everyone's in this hub, this is the center point to get all the other things, all the ancillary things in there. It works. So I get really annoyed when I get, like someone sent me like a social music streaming website and like fuck man like i got that you know these pitches like eight years ago and people are still doing it because of the vc money because people will there are still vcs out there that will finance it Nico? and that's not real it's just where are they dead <laughs> I, I can't, or there's fewer I, there's fewer I whatever tell you how many maybe they're VCs not vcs they're doing? they're angel investors they're guys right, that okay. you know they're rich people whatever i mean i can tell you firsthand like i can't tell you how many VCs turned us down. So I think they've been incredibly scared of this space, and rightly so. A lot of companies have, have been burned. I think what will be very interesting is next be. year when Spotify IPOs uh, and the, re the reaction that Wall Street has. Uh, and then that will be the real test. You know, Can an independent company be built that does not have a hardware business or a giant search business that actually is the lucrative bit, and they don't have to give up a percentage of those revenues? So you know, that will be the true, like, you know, the tests of, of the waters, really. Yeah, it's a sad thing I would say in answer to your question, I mean, semi-sad, is that I left Rhapsody and went to Google because it was clear to me to be in that space, you had to be one of the big boys. That space is coming down to Apple, Google, Amazon. Um, don't buy, when if Spotify does IPO before somebody acquires them, don't invest in it. That's like buying Twitter stock when they IPO'd. That's my investment advice for the day. We have time for one more question. This so who has Rhapsody the absolute best, the best question? Who has the best question? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, he was louder. You, but you were smiling bigger, so she gets it. She gets it. I like. Why don't we hear both questions and we'll decide which okay. one we think is better? All right. Oh, okay. All right. We'll hear both questions, and then the audience can clap for the one they want us to answer. Okay, so I happen to be a big fan of streaming services. I happen to agree with what you're all saying about enough's enough. How can we promote? Um, my question is around. 
um, live insights of audience audience consumers who attend live events and what role Pandora that plays. Pandora does it the best. Because of Ticketfly. Partly, but they were already doing it the best before that and they just, they're, they're great at that and someone's going to acquire them and use it really, really well. Right, so if we're not getting all the data on people who attend live events, what's the way in which your streaming services all merge what's happening with consumers at live shows with what you're doing in the recorded music I, spectrum? I, I, I th exactly. So what Sean's saying, so I, I think the key message there, you're asking the question, which is these services that will survive and thrive will actually connect all the different communities together. And then yeah. I did want it to open on the park. Some of the big boys and girls are the ones that can connect it from all those different ecosystems. So have partnerships. So if you're Google, you probably know a thing or two about data and search and, and cross uh, advertising and how to connect and link data. Um, I think actually Spotify will be one where we'll see if they can connect all the communities. Um, on, were. On, Spotify was doing it was. with their social features and then they stopped promoting yes. it. And so that they could do top 40 radio on itself. And then the, the last piece on it, I think, I think giving Pandora, Amp, uh, and the marketing, Next Big Sound, all of that, that stuff, they're, yeah. they're actually trying to bring Next in, awesome. trying to bring all those pieces together. And I do think that's going to grow and diversify the whole experience. That makes, again, the streaming grow. And, and not, not only grow, it, all, it, it, it stops just making money for the service itself. It actually starts making money for the creators. Yeah, I mean, it has to get to scale, right? So if we can help get it to scale, part of what one of the conversations I had with somebody at, at Apple Music was, you know, we can't actually direct message to people at live events in real time, right? So there's like 700 startups that have built that tech, and like, yep, it very few of them ever worked really well, but I think that's just, I don't know. But they I still can't, right? It, it, the tech exists, yeah. But no, it, how are they actually messaging to fans at events? The artists Apple. or Apple's not. Right. I don't think Apple should be. I think no. there should be some separation amongst. I think Why? Live Nation and Apple should be separate companies. What? Yeah, they should be separate companies, but I'm talking about the fans that I've are been, going. This conversation will have to continue in the hallway. I have I've been a 6.30 given the flight. I'm going to hang out for an hour. Shout out, I, shout out I, your I, question I, real fast. No, this guy. He, this guy. I wouldn't be. Yes, I, know, I know, I know. I know, but, 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 but say you were running an FM station in 2016 yeah. with all the experience you have. What would you do differently? And is there a possibility that FM can actually, uh, I know you said disruption is over in this uh, whole streaming thing, but is there any possibility that we could actually, from the M FM broadcasting side, actually contribute to the, the whole discovery yeah. thing yeah with can, can we go julie back pilot. to the good old radio days you know yeah beats one julie pilot julie pilot yeah, was one of the best programmers in the country and she got hired by jimmy Iving to build beats one with zane low and beats one's awesome and what about fm can it go back no no <laughs> for you can go forward and you can add interactivity FM, maybe it Julie Pilot is used to run one of the best FM stations in the country. She took all of her lessons, all of her knowledge, all of her strategies to build Beats One. There's a clock, and they they used all the same strategies. Like they have, you know, she does. She taught me it. Like every hour, there's a certain amount of like 
the top 40 songs, a certain amount of the alt songs, a certain amount of the like plugs for our priorities, whatever. They use all the same things. And it's the correlation is like the regular holiday show, the you know corporate sponsor, the Justin Bieber, and then the you know rare song, whatever. Uh, it's just going to exist on the stream. Uh, no, FM is not. FM sucks. Like, no. <laughs> we need... I'm, I'm afraid no. we, we have to stop. So all this can continue no. in the hallways. Nope. We need park rangers, not tastemakers. Good night. I'm going to hang out for an hour if anyone wants to talk. I'm